by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. Hi everyone, this is Rev Yearwood. This is episode two of a four-part special series we are doing on trucking electrification and transportation justice. Last episode, we were in Long Beach, California, and in this episode, we are going to Kansas City, or KCK, as they say. <laughs> I encourage you to listen to all four episodes in this series. As consumers and as voters, we have so much power to affect change in the trucking industry, and we must, because this is life and death for communities in every city across the country. So I'm, I'm excited. So first and foremost, hey, Rachel, hey, Better, how are y'all doing? All right. Well, how are you? Doing good. You know, we're hanging in there. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, a lot, it's a There's a lot going on, for sure. You know, there's, 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 no, there's no lack of things happening. So I want to thank y'all so much for um, hanging with me today, because I really want to get into this reputation justice uh, and hear... I'm excited. Um, so first, before we even get to that, let me actually do some of the uh, the uh, official intros so folks can know who we're talking with. Uh, first up, uh, we have Beto Lugo Martinez, who is a community organizer and co-director of the Frontline Grassroots Organization, Clean Air Now, in Kansas City. Through grassroots organizing, he leads an equitable conversation working toward a fossil fuel future by identifying zero emission technologies and reducing greenhouse gas emissions that disproportionately impact frontline communities. He serves to raise voices in the fight against, I'll say that again across, pick it up right there. He serves to raise community voices in the fight against environmental racism and to overcome systemic exclusion of frontline communities from local, state, and federal decision-making. His contributions include developing and deploying the largest community-based air monitoring network in the country and utilizing the data to drive statewide policy change in California. He co-authored publications reporting on community-based participatory research interventions and is a founding member of the California Environmental Justice Coalition, a grassroots organization led by people of color and low-income communities. As a member of multiple national and regional environmental justice and climate justice coalitions. For the past 10 years, Beto has been leading the fight to clean up a petrochemical facility adjacent to his childhood home in California. And then my other guest today is Miss Rachel Jefferson, and she is the executive director of the Groundwork Northeast Revitalization Group, GNRG, formerly known as the Historic Northeast Midtown Association. She was born in Kansas City, Missouri, 
and attended Miss Potter School in Farmington, Connecticut for high school. During her junior year, Rachel spent a year abroad in Beijing, People's Republic of China, and after graduation, attended Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Upon returning to Kansas City, Rachel relocated to the Kansas side of the state line and began a career in public health as outreach director and administrative assistant at a local safety net clinic. Rachel's time in the healthcare sector provided her with an understanding of the socioeconomic struggles that hinder good health among minority populations and ignited her passion to support the growth of human, social, and civic capacity at the grassroots and community levels. Rachel is a recipient of the 2011 Neighborhood Leadership Award and is an alumna of Leadership 2000, a leadership development program funded by the Kansas Leadership Center. Rachel is also a graduate of the Healthy Communities Leadership Academy, an initiative created by the Health Forward Foundation. The academy develops the efficacy of those who advocate for equitable policies to improve the health of the disfranchised and vulnerable populations in Kansas and Missouri, including the underserved, underinsured, and underinsured. I'm sitting again across that last sentence there. And rural populations in Kansas and Missouri, including the underserved, underinsured, and underinsured. Make sure I'm saying that. Make sure I've written correctly, actually. Including the underserved, underinsured, and un I think it repeats the same word in, the, in, in her bio. I'm just going to pick it up where it says on um, the part of his normal populations cross. Okay. And normal populations in Kansas and Missouri, including the underserved and underinsured. Richard currently lives and works in the northeast pocket of Kansas City, Kansas, and has come to love and appreciate the neighborhood people that have preserved in the fight to create an equitable Kansas City, Kansas for all. Man, I love it, I love it, I love it. So first and foremost, Beto and Rachel, I know you, you said you're doing good, but it's a lot going on in, uh, in, uh, here in 2020. So have you survived 2020? Are you surviving 2020? Are you excited for 2021? What's the deal on that? Yeah, uh, we're here, but yeah, I'm excited for 2021. You know, uh, excited to see what's in the horizon for us, you know, continue this work. I think survival is a great, great word for it. Uh, you know, just trying to remain resilient. Uh, that's, that's another good word for it right there. I think resiliency is what we are definitely doing. What well, phenomenal bio, which is usually the case with the activists we have here on the, on the Cooler Show. And so, but I think that people want to know more about you. So I'll start with you, Rachel. Who is Rachel Jefferson? Uh, that's a that's a heavy question. <laughs> and one I, I ponder every day, actually. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, you read a little bit about my background and how I got involved in the work that we're doing now in Kansas City, Kansas. And I think that at my heart, I've always been a social justice advocate. I actually started in this work because of um, my mother's car being illegally towed mm. by the city of Kansas City, Kansas. And she basically decided to do what they say not to do, which is fight City Hall, and uh, took her illegal tow case to the city and spent many, many, many afternoons at the law library fighting that case for several years and actually 
one, but that was just um, a, an antidote that particularly highlighted the the peculiar kind of inequities that exist here in KCK and I think summarizes kind of the work that we're trying to do in terms of system change and giving everybody a fair shake and a fair opportunity here in KCK. First, I definitely I never heard it called KCK before. You just taught me something brand new. That was actually fun. I, I, I just I mean obviously now I'm gonna I'm gonna call it KCK forever. Like it's gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be I'm gonna break it down when, I, when they do I see somebody. I'm gonna be like you know I'm just, I, I flew through KCK. You know. <laughs> They don't know what I'm talking about, man. That 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 that's wonderful. Now I also saw that I read how you. It's I guess there are two sides of Kansas City, KCK, and I, I know for me when I just like in the different areas with the railroad tracks and there's two sides of a city, but that but I think that means something different to when you and you said it. What, what does that mean actually? Two sides. Okay. Well, I mean there actually is two Kansas cities. So Kansas City itself, uh, there's a Kansas City, Kansas, and a Kansas City, Missouri. Yep. And so the state line, in some ways, you can think about it running through the city. Of course, they are their own entities as well. Um, but, you know, like, like you mentioned from my bio, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, and now I work over in Kansas City, Kansas. And they are two very different cities um, with very different um pressures and challenges and work that's to be done, but the majority of our work does happen in Kansas City, Kansas, which we lovingly call KCK, KCK forever. <laughs> oh man, that's what's up. Now, Beto, are you in KCK? Uh, I'm in Kansas City, Missouri, but the organization that I'm with is, uh, we do work in Missouri and KCK, but uh, most, most of our work is in KCK right now. Got it. That's where the organization started, the inception of the organization. It began in KCK based on community concerns. So, yeah. You guys, I was when I asked you the same question, who is better Lugo Martinez? I didn't know how a California kid ended up in, in KCK or Candace, Candace, period. I don't I just want to how you, I mean, we like Dorothy, you got, you were like, yeah, you got in the, it was a hurricane, you flew. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how, how that, how that happened here. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, I still try to, I asked that question myself, you know, how did I end up here? But, you know, my partner, she got a job offer out here. So we said, let's, let's try it, see what happens, you know. I was already connected to Rachel for a number of years and others in the organization here in KCK. So it seemed like a good fit. You know, I'm part of the Moving Forward Network, which is, I think, you know, a national network. So it was a good fit. But, yeah, a little bit about me. Um, you know, a lot of my work is really through grassroots organizing. You know, I grew up um, next to a pesticide facility plant. So early mm -hmm. on, you know, when I was going to school and during grade school, high school, junior high and high school, you know, I was exposed to all these, these sources of pollution, chemical in the air every morning because of the proximity from my home to the pesticide facility, right? And so early on, I knew something wasn't right. You know, my parents actually moved to this home, right, adjacent to this without knowing the, the, um, the danger, right, that it could pose on, on, on the children, on my, my siblings or myself or even our family. Um, they took this opportunity to be a first-time homeowner because there was a, a federally funded program uh, that offered this opportunity, right, to first home-time owners. Um, and, but it's no secret that these same programs are the same 
these programs usually place people next to these contaminated sites or places that have all these environmental indicators, right? So that's a little bit of my background and how I got involved. Probably didn't happen immediately, but it happened through the time after I finished high school and I came back and said, you know what, this is what I've been through. I need to go back and work on these issues that impact my local community. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And Rachel, one last thing. Did you, did you, um, I saw you, did you, uh, when did you um, go to Georgetown over there? Um, that would have been in 2004. Mm. You just missed me. You know, I was, I taught at Georgetown. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Little, little, who was who Rev Yearwood. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. As I was there, I, I would have just left right when you, uh, right when you came. That's when I went to work with the Hip Hop Some Action Network. So, small world. So, this conversation really, uh, a few Shows back on the coolest show we had on here, um, Chairman um, Grahova and uh, Congressman McKeachin, and they were talking about the the EJ Act and that they had put forth. And I would encourage anybody to go back and listen to that to that show. Um, and one of the things that's important for this conversation is really around uh, transportation justice, and I think there needs to be a master's class. A lot of times in our, in our climate movement, our climate justice movement, we have a tendency to be sometimes siloed and which we put our, we put our issues and our, our work in buckets. So we put our pipeline fighters over here in a bucket. We put our mountain removal folks and our fracking folk in a bucket. Um, and sometimes the, the movement in itself, we are a segregated, which means that siloed movement. Sometimes we put even our, our race and our genders in buckets. And so, we, we need to break down all those silos. So I really want for y'all to really educate the listeners. I mean, this is really an important thing at this moment as we have new administrations coming in on the federal level, on the state level, local levels around the country. And a lot of them are being, they may, un, they may think they understand, but they may not understand. So I guess, Rachel, it's up with you. Then, you know, Beto, definitely, I want, so what is interpretation justice? And how does this intersect with climate and environmental justice? I'm actually going to kick that over to Beto to okay. start. Yeah, so I can, you know, talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, it's, um, as you know, the fossil fuel trucks and buses are a significant source of air pollution, including NOx and particulate matter uh, in our communities, right, which leads to smog mm -hmm. and contribution to, like I said, PM levels and actually, um, one of the diesel components, black carbon, is is uh, it's an accelerator for climate change, right? So it's done by the incom incomplete combustion of fossil fuels. So for this specific conversation, we we're talking about fossil fuel trucks, and you know it's interesting because you're right. You know sometimes the conversation is one or the other, uh, and when we're talking about electric trucks, it hasn't really been part of the of the transportation justice discourse, right? I think that the solutions are about just- Why is that better? Um, I think because, you know, traditionally we thought about the transportation, uh, making sure that communities have accessible transportation buses and public transit, right? Mm -hmm. But I think this still intersects with the climate justice and environmental justice movement because we're trying to find solutions, not, not just about the forms of, of good movements, but how it centers the workers, communities, and the environment. 
Um, you know, we want to see better equality, just like climate justice activists and environmental justice um, leaders want to see that. So it's, it's, it's the same. It's just we haven't been able to kind of present it as transportation justice. And I think this conversation is going to be good because it might get us to that kind of like where, where we can go. But, you know, what, how it intersects with, like I said, climate and environmental justice is because of the inequalities that we all experience, whether it's living close to a freight hub or living close to a polluted waterway, you're still uh, being impacted equally, right? Uh, being impacted by the, by the sources of pollution. So, um, you know, and more often than not, most of these communities are the same vulnerable communities, frontline communities um, that are the ones that bear this, the, most of these environmental hazards and indicators, right? So, um, but going back to transportation justice, you know, I'm thinking about where, when we think about transportation justice, um, it's just one fundamental building block of a healthy region, I think. Mm. Advanced transportation justice, we partner with leaders in the community that have historically lacked political and decision-making power in the region. We envision a transportation system that also dis distributes, distribute, uh, distributes transportation benefits um, and investments equitably throughout the region promote effective leadership from low-income communities and communities of color in transportation decision-making processes. Um, so the this, this situation, like Rachel mentioned, will only improve if we can dismantle environmental racism and overcome systematic exclusion of frontline communities from the decision-making process. So, yeah, I, that's my response for, for this. And I don't know if you want to add something else, Rachel, or you? That's a great response, Rachel. Yeah, you know, Beto, while you're saying that, and I was thinking about Reb's question, you know, I think that there is this kind of um, tension that exists um, that's created be about between jobs and the environment. And so you know, thinking about transportation ju justice, um, thinking about the opportunities that come to communities like ours, like warehouse distribution centers and stuff like that, there just isn't a conversation in Kansas City or in Kansas around the impacts of these trucks coming in and out of these neighborhoods, um, creating truck routes, you know, doing truck counting, putting in air, it's just not a conversation. And it seems like every time you try to bring up that conversation, it does become an argument about jobs somehow. You know, like, well, if you try to do that, they're not gonna bring the jobs, you know? And I think that one of the things that I've appreciated about the Moving Forward Network is the attempt to bring in the labor organizers more into the conversation. I actually think I, I may have met you um, back at the um, Moving Forward Network conference in California, in Carson, California, Rev. You gave great um, plenary speech there, but there was also um, a conversation. Text in the mail. It was wonderful. Um, <laughs> But there was also a conversation there about the labor organizing and like you had said, kind of breaking down the silos that exist between these different movements and also realizing that the people that are, you know, labor, laborers and truckers, they are absolutely impacted by the same health concerns that Beto's talking about, the same type of concerns that people are living, that are, are experiencing, that are stationary in these neighborhoods. These truckers are experiencing that every day on the job. Right. And so I think it is about collapsing those silos and finding those leverage points 
where um, advocates both on the labor front and the environmental front can work together to find solutions um, that also end up in economic prosperity for everybody, right? Because you can't have economic prosperity if people are unhealthy in the end. No, that's, that's real. And I, and I guess there's a, one of the facts, is just, so let's take a step back a little bit, because you know, when, we think, when I think about permission justice and this issue, I kind of think about the ports first, right? I kind of think about, right, I think about the ports in LA and, and Long Beach, then I think about Newark, I think about, I think about those things. And so I, I kind of had to kind of get my head around kind of Kansas City, right? I had to kind of like, okay, is that, is Kansas like a major freight? Is that, I'm trying to, I was trying to figure out, I mean, I know there's trucks everywhere, but it's like, and then I was, so let's kind of go back to that. I think people, I think people who are listening don't know that Kansas City is a major, major freight train and cargo destination in the center of the country. And so, and there's a large part of the local environmental interstices that are stemmed from this trucking and railroad hubs in the community. So kind of ex for explain that so people can understand what's actually coming through. You kind of mentioned truck counting, so I know that's what kind of kicked that in because I'm thinking about those who are in, like in, in, in like Long Beach, we like we'll, we'll count the 50,000 trucks will come through a day. And, and so is that, explain this, what is the magnitude of the pollution that is happening in KCK and in Kansas City? Yeah, I'll let Beto tackle that because he's definitely more familiar with the data than I am. Yeah, so, you know, some of the issues that you're right, you know, so Kansas City, Kansas, it's an inland port. We call them inland ports. You know, this is a, a term that we use because um, it's a distribution hub, but it's also the second largest classification opacity testing yard. So any rail that comes from the, say a rail came from uh, the West Coast or the East Coast, when they get to this hub, they need to do some testing on it, right? To make sure that the emission controls and et cetera are within their guidelines, right? Although we know that they're still polluting it into, into our community. So the impacts of having a rail yard fence line to the community has been, uh, I think like Rachel says, it's been a conversation that they wanna have and get involved. And just to be transparent, our organization was formed based on community concerns around, around the rail yard and the freight industry. That's the inception of the organization. And what I'm getting at is that- That's clean air now, right? Yeah, that's clean air now, formerly Diesel Health Project. So it started as Diesel Health Project, then it's named Clean Air Now. And so um, a lot of the concerns were, I, my husband works there, my family member works there, right? And I, 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 I see the impacts, we know what they are, you know, and they wanna get involved, but yeah, you know, and, and so that was kind of the initial conversation of why it was so important to do more in that community, uh, because like I mentioned earlier, you know, the, 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 the black carbon, the suit, the black stuff you see in the windowsill sometimes. I mean, if you see it in your windowsill, you'll see it inside your home. And if you see it inside your home, you might be breathing that same pollutant, right? And so, but, but you know, the amount of transportation that goes through, through here is huge. I mean, we're in the Midwest, so we're kind of like, the, the midway point between both connections. I mean, a lot of the discussions and a lot of the, of the even, 
a lot of the attention is more uh, most of the time it's facing the east and the west coast and you know uh not just on this but in a lot of fronts right but and so it happens to be that you know kck um is still a place where people are not ready to, they're not they they push back when we're having these conversations wow uh, you know they push back like no you know like like and, and, and I can share more of the stuff that we've done as an organization through through the work that we did initially. Um, uh, we um, through community gathering data, like we said, the truck house. We didn't do truck house, but we did uh, uh, community site um, specific site monitoring around black carbon, the pollutant from from uh, from uh, diesel. And from there, we were able to see that we we're finding elevated levels of pollution. Our work prompted an EPA study. Okay, this EPA study was a two-year study that the EPA then partnered with the rail yard to do their study, right? So what does that mean? You know, it could be that, hey, they turn off their trucks or their engines, right, where they're idling, right? Um, but what I'm getting at is that even through all this work, there has been pushback on the community level. You know, people not, a, you know, they're making plans, transportation plans, climate action plans, and not including those voices, the voices of the community that need to be at the table. Hmm. Um, and the, the people that are invited are always the same people, the public health agency officers that usually don't live in those same communities, the land use owners that don't necessarily live in the community but are property owners. So um, yeah, and so it's, it's I'll, I'll leave it there. I don't know if you wanna add anything else, uh, Rachel. I know might not answer your full question about what commodities go through here, but uh, I mean, we have Procter & Gamble, for example, we have uh, ethylene oxide facilities and all this stuff needs to be shipped somewhere. So we have a big chemical uh, uh, complex in this area as well. It's not just uh, goods movements coming from other places, but what we ship from this particular area to other places. So it, it, is, a, it is a hub. And we see that the ozone levels are really high in this area, particularly from all the, all the movement with the trucks and these facilities in, in the frontline communities. Mm. Yes, we see, you know, we would see like a lot of those containers, those shipping containers, Rev, that you would see at those ports there that you mentioned before, like LA and Long Beach, they're gonna get loaded on a train and they might come through Kansas City, right? And so that's, that's kind of how they make their way across the country. And then, you know, we have some mixed freight as well. We could have a car full of, you know, lumber or grain or corn, what have you. But um, the majority of what is on our trains is actually coal. Mm. And not a lot known about the um, environmental and health impacts of coal dust coming off those rail cars. But that is one of the um, largest things that, that come through our ports, actually. Wow. I mean, this this is fascinating because I, I honestly really never, y'all are just opening up my whole eyes to it. I, I never really thought of an inland port, an inland port, or inland destination, an inland hub where people were, where things would come through in that regard. And I guess so. This because help me through it a little bit. I know in those east and west coast areas, unfortunately, a lot of black and brown and poor and these people live around these areas, and that's not by accident it's it's right. by, it's by design right and so give me some some ideas of who's is it the same situation here um yeah. are poor people living around these this these polluted ways 
Yeah, um, unfortunately, it is very, very similar to the trends and that you're seeing the patterns that you see across the country. And that's kind of what Beto was talking about before Clean Air Now changed its name to Clean Air Now actually was called the Diesel Health Project. Um, and it was focused on monitoring around the rail yard in Argentine, which is a historically um, um, actually more mixed, but now it's definitely has more of a Latinx and Hispanic flavor. Um, that's that inhabits that area is actually not very far from uh, several churches and schools um, near those shipping yards. Um, and what that what that spurred us to do is actually do air monitoring at different sites across Kansas City, Kansas, where we thought we might see high levels of diesel health pollution. So we also did some monitoring around an industrial area. Um, we did some monitoring at some public housing authority sites, and one of those public housing authority sites is St. Margaret's Apartments that are really right there on a bluff over I-70, and then the rail yard is uh, to the directly to the south of that highway. Right. And that was one of the areas where we saw the most elevated levels of air pollution, actually, because those residents are, ex are experiencing the pollution coming off the highway and the rail yard, um, both. So what we did is we did um, both indoor and outdoor interventions. We did indoor air monitoring to ensure that the filters, the level of filters that were installed there at the residence apartments were adequate to filter out some of that pollution, as well as we did a tree planting in partnership with the housing authority and bridging the gap and then my organization, Groundwork Energy. We planted about 25 carbon sequestering trees, red cedar, which is actually native to Kansas, um, right there on the edge of the apartments where the bluff is on the highway. And so it is our hope that over time, those trees will grow and help protect those residents by capturing the carbon that's coming off of those areas, um, as well as provide a nice kind of aesthetic barrier for those residents so they don't have to like look at the highway and the rail yard and you know have kind of a protection there hmm. no no that's man i mean so i guess one of the things i want to get into with that is you know first of all thank you both for your work and fighting for clean air uh I, as someone who talks to people all over the country i think people need to understand that you know asthma and emphysema and cancer are real. And when you see particularly black and brown, um, indigenous and poor people dying because of that, um, it really feels, um, you know, to me like genocide. So all those actors like yourselves, thank you for lifting this up because you kind of mentioned earlier, Rachel, about how this is, uh, you know, there's the, the health and wealth fight goes on, right? Mm -hmm. In which, you know, there's one side that say, you know, you know, well, we got to make money and we got to ride these trucks or get this railroad through this cold. But on the other side, it's like, man, you, if your business plan is a death sentence for me, then that's not really, I'm not really with your business plan. I'm not really with, I'm not really with that. So I think that, you know, this is, this is just an important piece. So thank y'all. But what are, what are some of the, I mean, as we deal, as you deal with that, as you this is, seems very layered and complicated, actually, in regards to reputation justice. So as you're dealing with all the, the, the obstacles, let's say that, you're dealing with the, the, those who want to, who are dealing, I mean, probably those who are also from the same vulnerable communities, black and brown, and these communities who are driving these trucks. They say, man, I, I, I got to make my living, you know, and are those who, where these trucks and railroad come through, you know, 
what, what are some of the obstacles you're engaging? You kind of mentioned a little bit better with some of this. I kind of, if you can hit that also, you kind of mentioned that people not speaking, uh, people not being able to speak for themselves as well. You kind of hit on that a little bit. But just overall, what are some of the obstacles to clean air in Candace and KCK? I think, number one, it, it, is, a, it is an awareness and education issue. Um, I remember Beto said to me, and it was very poignant to me the way he said it. He said, you know, people don't think that you're having a bad air day here in Kansas City because it's not like L.A. where you just see the smog every day, you know? So, like, you look outside your window and you're like, oh, you know, it looks pretty nice. There's not a heavy layer of smog. But, in fact, it could actually be a bad air quality day. Hmm. So, you know, that that is a big part of the education, I think, in Clean Air Now's mission is to educate people so that they do understand the risks that they're facing um, from these polluters, in which they may live close to, right? And they understand the sources and how it affects them. Um, in a really easy to understand way, I think is really important. And then I think there's also the responsibility of organizations, like these organizations that are putting together these climate playbooks and what have you, to actually truly engage with residents where they are, instead of just hosting like a public meeting at five o'clock on a Wednesday, which is like a church night. <laughs> and expecting people and then be like, well, they didn't show up. Well, people don't fully understand the issue. And so you have to educate them on the issue and then meet them where they are to talk to them about what solutions they would want to see in their community. And we just have a dearth of that across the board, you know, whether you're talking about environmental quality um, in the built environment, or you could even bring it to the conversation around land use and anti-displacement efforts. Um, just people aren't as civically engaged as they once were and don't fully even understand the impacts and effects of, of these um, issues on their lives, let alone how to actually get involved if they did, you know? So, yeah. Better? Yes, you know, and I, I wanted to add to your comment, uh, Reverend Yearwood, um, and both we, Rachel, you know, and it's important to think about not just locally, I mean, we're talking about KCK, but we're also talking about other places, you know, that a lot of these freeway interchanges, and this might not be part of the conversation, but I wanted to put it out there so we can broaden why a lot of these things happen. You know, a lot of the freeway interchanges that, that are near low-income communities are sometimes the most racist monuments that exist in the world, in the country, because they segregate communities based on wealth and color. And Thanks. you will see designated truck routes or corridors leading directly into black and brown communities. You will not see that. You won't see these truck routes into a wealthy community, right? Because these communities are also the ones where you'll find the good movement warehouses, the trucks, the idling, the industrial chemical facilities, and all the spewing, all of these, and the rail yards spewing toxic air pollution. And like Rachel said, this happens because this happens because of exclusionary zoning uh, practices and the distribution of wealth and pollution is not shared equally. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done. It's not just, you know, and when we think about going back to your initial question about the intersection of everything, it's not just one fight. It's a lot of things to get us to where we want, where we want to be to transition to fossil fuels. It's, it's a lot of work happening on the ground. Uh, to get there. So I just wanted to add that. And then I think the, your question also was about the obstacles. And I think, you know, uh, Rachel hit right on it, you know, that 
these people, they have their policy, they draft their plan, and then after it's written, oh, we have this plan ready. Can you guys tell us if it looks good or if it's okay, if it's gonna, if it's something that we should pass? You know, they already made their plan. They already made their decision. It's always after the fact, always after the fact. It continues to be the problems here in, in, at the local level. Man, I love it. Nah. And I, I just want to say this for folks who are listening. I want to give you a little bit of history that some of y'all were thinking that uh, hip-hop was started, um, you know, just for the younger folks. It wasn't by Jay-Z or, or whoever you may think. It actually wasn't that. This is the little thing. Hip-hop was started by transportation justice. <laughs> Facts. That's a fact, y'all. Uh, way hip-hop was created was because of what Beto just said. It was created from the standpoint that the Bronx, um, uh, Robert Moses, the highway baron and developer, built the, the Bronx Causeway through this, the middle of the Bronx, which divided the Bronx from the rest of the community, which created redlining, which created pollution, which created poverty. And literally, by putting that highway... Uh, right through the community, um, the poor people in that community began to want to use their cultural expression to take their political experience, and that's actually how hip-hop was born. And it actually became a voice of the people, literally because of what we're talking about right now. So there's a little bit of history there for y'all who might, might not have known that, but that literally is how, what we're talking about now is l literally how the, this culture that's uh, a part of this program, the coolest show, uh, was was started. Um, so thank you for that, Beto and, and, and Rachel. Y'all, y'all are kind of still fighting on what we created this this this, this culture. But with that, what, what would you want the entire country? Uh, I guess what would you want now if you could step outside of Kansas City or or bring them to KCK in Kansas City? What, what would you want them? What 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 part of your fight? If you can say, okay, this is the thing that we need to fix um, for 2021 um, as part of this, uh, this fight that we're in, what would you want them to join you with on that? Go yeah, ahead. I think, you know, I can, yeah. So I think, you know, we need to have some policies, some right policies and investments from the federal, state, and even local government to accelerate the transition to zero emission um, transportation system. <clears throat> and these would include setting targets, right, on for electric, electric truck adoption, enacting standards for manufacturers to make more of these types of vehicles, and developing programs to help cities and companies achieve these goals as well. Um, and like we mentioned earlier, these policies and investments should also ensure that the workers from these communities gain access to training and job opportunities that, that electric vehicle deployment and that and that electric vehicle deployment is prioritized in the communities already breathing the dirtiest air. And just to give you a, a little bit of background, um, just recently, 15 states, 15 states sent an MOU to zero out emissions from new medium and heavy duty trucks. So that's big in what we're talking about, future policy and how we can use that, you know, different organizations, grassroots organizations on the ground, maybe meet with their local legislators and try to push that agenda as well. That, you know what, we need to zero out because it's, it's, it's something we need to do for the, the benefit of our planet and our health, right? So um, I, maybe you want to add anything else, Rachel? Well, before, you, before you hop in there, Rachel, may I just follow one thing on that, Beto, just real quick. Break down for me, though, because there's a difference because you're saying electrifying 
trucking, which is important, there's also this automation. And so make sure, what's the difference between those two? Because I think that's very important because automation also may take some of these jobs that, I mean, just kind of break that part down. Yeah. So, you know, the automation is sometimes in these facilities, you know, they have these machines that do the work of a, that a person could do before, right? So we need to start thinking about that we don't displace the workers, that we're going to train uh, and we're going to move into these technologies that we're also creating a pathway for they can still benefit and still have a job in the green, in, in, a, in, in a green job, a green energy job, right? Where they can continue to work in these facilities. But, you know, working in these facilities will also allow, uh, will also improve their health because now we're not, we're not dependent on fossil fuels, right? So I think it's very important to think about both hand in hand that we train them into the new technologies because you're right, the automation can sometimes displace workers. So we need to find a balance in these solutions, right? And I think that goes back to the point where Rachel made earlier about labor unions also willing to meet halfway with the environmental justice movements, which is happening in a lot of places. We're, you know, uniting forces and making sure that those conversations are happening, not only from the outside and the community, but also from the inside, the worker unions that are, exist within, within these, within these uh, companies. Mm. Rachel? Yeah, I think... For me, what I would like to see on a larger scale is paying people for their engagement. Mm. Oftentimes, um, people are asked to participate in some type of focus group or survey. What do you want? We want to give you what you need, although they don't ever really want to give you what, they, what you need. They already have a pre-baked notion of what you need. So that that's just kind of lip service. But in the end, I think it's really important to stop extracting from communities and to pay people for their engagement in these processes. And that's one of the things that we do as an organization and Clean Air Now does as an organization is whether it be a gift card, whether it be a stipend, whether it be an hourly wage, paying people for the value of their expertise, which means that you've recognized that they have expertise and that it's just as valuable as what you're bringing to the conversation. And I think that in terms of being able to loosen up state and federal dollars to do that work through planning processes um, and community engagement initiatives. That is probably one of the things that I would like to see the most because if we're talking about building wealth, right, why not start with the community engagement that everybody seems to seek and need so badly, right? You can, people actually need money in their pockets right now and we could provide that to them while honoring the value that they're bringing to the process and also building wealth and economically uplifting them in a community. So I think that's like for me, number one is how can we loosen up some of these funds so that we can recognize and value people appropriately and pay them for their time and their engagement and any type of community engagement, public participatory process. That's like number one. Um, and then I think also that that move to to policy is very important. Um, I think it's just as important, though, that community members are the ones that are crafting that policy based on the actual on the ground needs and barriers and challenges that they see. And then on the other end of that, to have local government, state government, federal government willing to back and to accept what the community is saying in terms of what they need and finding resources for that instead of some of the backroom dealings that I deal with every day, I think is also just as equally important as well. So no, that's 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 very important. And actually I, I guess I I really thank you so much for your time and I 
I have two more questions, but I want to piggyback what you just said, Rachel, because this is actually very important. Because um, you, guys, I just realized you guys kind of sit in the in the middle. We have different two different states going on there, you know, between Missouri and Kansas, two different cities, and so you have a whole you have different things that are happening, and even different cultures, different ways of of how things are, you know, just going on. So there's a climate movement also around the work that you do, that obviously you're a part of. Um, and I guess as both people of color, um, how do you, do you one, um, feel safe in the current climate movement? Um, um, I mean, safe meaning not, not physically, well, maybe whatever, but, but more so able to speak out, you know, voice being heard and just, you know, not being marginalized, but more importantly, kind of what you said, Rachel, not, not from the exterior, but in the interior, do you feel like the resources, the funding um, yeah. that are, that are just, you see a lot of more of the large big greens or sort of getting these resources to come in and astroturf and swoop in. Do you feel like you're getting, I mean, cause that will also be a very important piece. I mean, that's an important measure for our movement is that now that we have equity on the outside, was equity on the inside. So how do you feel about that? How do, you, how do y'all feel about that? Well, I think that it's a great question. I think that's why the actions of Moving Forward Network are so laudable because that is one of their core missions is to bring those dollars to the frontline organizations that are doing the work. Um, and I think it is still very much the issue. Um, I just went through an experience recently, which was very extractive of my organization and definitely impaired our ability to um, complete our mission. But another organization is going to be able to kind of capitalize off of that. So I, I do think that there is still very much an equity issue when we're talking about dollars being spent around the climate movement. Um, I think that it's easy to go to an institution that has been, quote unquote, doing this work for a long time, even though the work may not be right, the right work may not look the right way, may not have the right people at the table or actually be equitable and just say, you know, well, we're going to give you $100,000, you handle it, you know, because you know how to dress it up and it looks good and what have you, and you can get it done in a year, probably because there's not actually any authentic community engagement that's actually happening. You know, I think those are all real barriers and challenges that we continuously face. I would say also within the movement, something that I've noticed, which has bothered me for quite some years now, and I've never really spoken out on it, um, is, is this like siloed mentality among the different indigenous and people of color in the movement. Mm -hmm. And it does seem to be this kind of conversation around comparative suffering that I've noticed happening um, where it's like, well, our land was stolen from us, true. Well, we were stolen from our land, true. And it's like, well, which one is, and it's like, well, you know, and so there's this very weird kind of thing that happens Mm -hmm. um, in these conversations where it becomes like, who's the most disenfranchised person of color or indigenous person at the table? And I just think that that doesn't do anything in terms of like serving us to actually advance our shared goals or our shared mission. Um, And I think it actually sometimes pushes people who maybe want to be engaged to to the outside um, who are maybe like, you know what, I don't I don't want to deal with that. So um, I think that those two things in particular um, are troubling. Better? Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of community led solutions uh, at the community level, organizations doing great work. Um, and, you know, these same agencies that Rachel mentioned that 
sometimes draft these plans, right, and, and want to um, say we need someone to do community engagement. They don't want to offer the resources to do a true, uh, a true community engagement uh, process or, 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 or project, right? They really just want to put the money somewhere, to check the box, and that's it. You know, they're not, they're not worried about what change they're going to bring. They just want to check their own box. And I think, you know, she's right about the funding. I think, you know, grassroots leadership, a lot of these organizations are the ones doing the work on the ground, monitoring, doing all this stuff on the ground when other big greens are sometimes the policy makers are the ones writing the policy, but are not doing the work on the ground, you know, and that also creates a, dis a disconnect because, you know, they're claiming we're EJ, but we're doing the work on the ground as EJ activists and, and doing all the grassroots work and all, the, all that. So those are important things that we need to think about as well as, as we look for funding or who or where the funding goes, because there's a lot of expertise within frontline communities. Um, you know, a lot of these other agencies, um, like Rachel said, are go-to agencies that any, any planning, transportation, they go to these agencies because they are the go-to. But you know what? Then they hire a consultant that lives uh, two states away to do the pro to, mm. to figure out what's going to happen here, right, locally. So uh, I'll leave it at that. But, yeah, these are things that, that happen, and, and, you know, we, we are – we, you know, Rachel and I and a lot of, of us here in, in KCK are, you know, pushing, pushing, pushing because, you know, we see other groups, um, uh, white-led groups claiming environmental justice. And, and I mean, the screen looks very white, you know, when I were talking with them and I told them that. And Rachel, I think I, I, I was at a meeting one day and I told Rachel, this is what I told them. And she told me, I told them the same, same thing in the afternoon, the exact same thing, you know. And, and, but these are the things that we're up against about ex the extractive practices that exist around us, you know, so. No. No, I, I see you nodding your head here, but you want to add to that? I see like you want to, you want to have like I think y'all want like y'all like a tag team, y'all y'all like y'all like yeah. I see you, you want to tag and help me here, add a, add a, add a couple more things to the to, to the process. No, I think I think I, I was just nodding my head because I was like, yes, like Beto is hitting all the the exact notes of of the challenges, and honestly, it does. I think it's interesting the way that you phrased it. Do we feel safe? And um, sometimes you don't feel safe, right? Sometimes you really do feel attacked. And there's that old adage, well, it's just business. Don't take it personally, but it is personal. And this type of work, it's very personal because people are are really personally feeling the effects of this, right? They're feeling the effects of the histories of, of history and decades long intentional uh, disinvestment of communities, the disenfranchisement of people's voices, the, the historic redlining that uh, caused people to not be able to take uh, opportunities that, that were given to others freely. And, um, you know, especially in 2020. So, you know, in this work, Rev, I'm sure, you, you know, you, you, you find ways to kind of keep yourself healthy, self-care, right? Keep your resilience up. And, and, and I think this year has just been especially tough, especially tough for, for those of us who have been in this fight for a while. Um, and, and just seeing, you know, I, I did, I guess I'll, I was listening to a podcast, uh, a Cornell West podcast the other day, and it was, uh, he was saying, you know what, I'm, uh, I'm not optimistic, but I'm hopeful because mm -hmm. there really is nothing in terms of facts or trends or anything that would cause anybody who's paying attention to be very optimistic. Um, but hope, hope is about faith. 
right? And it's about this, this kind of belief um, that things will get better despite what you see, despite the odds against you. Um, and I think that for me is, is what I hold on to those times where I, I don't feel safe, where I do feel um, put upon or exhausted or extracted from is, is the idea of hope and the idea of faith um, that, that it's still worthy, worthy work to engage in because we have to, mm-hmm. right? Like we, it's, it's, we understand that it is a critical need this work that we're doing um, and this awareness we're trying to bring and these change of systems and attitudes that we're trying to implement. And no one ever said it was gonna be easy, um, but to be hopeful that the people that we are working with, our fellow, our fellow humans, um, will eventually get it one day and that we will eventually get there is, is part of the work that I think we're all collectively building towards. So. Uh, very, very well said. This is my last question for y'all. Thank y'all so much. It was a great conversation. I appreciate this so much. Thank you. The last question for both of you is simply, not simply actually, it's actually kind of a a little bit of a heavy question here, but what would it mean if the movement as a whole stood in solidarity and made transportation justice, specifically electrifying trucking, a key issue in the movement? I think that this is a critical time, you know, very critical time that the climate justice movement to support a transition from fossil fuels to clean technologies and a just transition for workers, accelerating the use of zero emission trucks and freight transport transport um, would also improve the health of fence communities and frontline workers. Our vision for climate justice should center around the end of fossil fuels while supporting clean jobs for communities. Uh, because, you know, this fight for climate, environmental justice, transportation justice, and racial justice are inseparable. Rachel? I think uh, just very simply, it would mean that we would have a wider, deeper, and more sustainable impact if the whole movement were to get around transportation justice. And then, you know, I think that inevitably, like you said earlier, that conversation would lead us into other conversations and we would find the intersection um, of our work, of our shared work a little bit easier. But I think that having a whole group increasing our, 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 you know, our, our, our people power, so to speak, obviously would move things forward a, a little bit quicker. Um, simply put, but I think we would also find new opportunities for collaboration that would help us collapse some of those silos you were talking about earlier. Mm. Fantastic. Rachel, if folks want to find you or uh, the work you do, how, how can they do that? Northeast KCK. If they were to Google Northeast KCK or on Facebook, that's our website is northeastkck.org. Our contact information is on there. You find us on Instagram or Facebook, like I said, and our website, northeastkck.org is where they'd be best to find find us for sure. And Beto, uh, how can they find you and, and your work over there at Clean Air Now? So our organization URL is C-A-N-K-C.org. Um, so you can go to our website or our Facebook is also at Clean Air Now KC. So you can find us there. Um, we have our info 
hard to get hold yeah, of. Yeah, and you can find Beto through me as well, and you can find me through Beto because we work closely together. So just it is. either one of those, and we'll get you in touch with you. We'll fit it. You'll figure it out. So yeah. I, that's, that's that's real. Real talk. Well, if nothing else, y'all taught me KCK, so I'm going to be saying KCK all day. Yeah. All day, every day. KCK. All day. going through KCK. Look up my fans, Beto and Rachel, while you're cutting through there. <laughs> oh, man. Thank y'all so much for being with me here um, on The Coolest Show. And that's Beto Hugo Martinez, the co-director of Clean Air Now, and Rachel Jefferson, Executive Director of Groundwork Northeast Revitalization Group. They are our guests today. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a nonprofit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. Think 100.